Amen. Well, I'll go ahead and take a seat. Good morning, City Light. Good morning, good morning. Hey, uh, today is an exciting day uh, in the life of City Light. Um, this morning, as we're going to hear uh, from Pastor Taylor, and we're going to hear about the calling God has put on his life to plant uh, T, uh, to plant <clears throat> 1027 Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And so I'm going to go ahead and invite Taylor on up here. Y'all welcome, Pastor Taylor. Uh, this, is a, this is a big, important day, an exciting day, uh, because as we came here to plant City Light, it certainly is not to build the kingdom of City Light, but to build uh, God's kingdom. And so we're super excited uh, to be able to launch Taylor, his family, uh, Greg and Aaron as well, and some other faithful people here to go serve the Lord in Charleston. Uh, something we say all the time, it's a launching pad, not a landing place, all right? So the idea is we come, we get equipped, we get sent. Uh, we hope to do this over and over and over again, uh, that the legacy of City Light would be that there's a bunch of churches throughout all the, all the world uh, that are being used by God to bless the world and not just one big church somewhere. And so we're super thankful for what God's done in Taylor's life, super thankful for his wife, Rachel, for Greg and Aaron, how faithful they have been here at City Light. Uh, and we're excited to be able to launch them out and to pray over them and to hear about this vision. So I just want to encourage you this morning that as we've seen City Light, you know, multiply in a family of churches, as we see other languages begin to minister uh, throughout the ministry of City Light, that this is the goal of what we came here is to spread the work of the gospel uh, in every language that we can to all the places that we can and to raise up as many leaders as we can that can go do this as best they can. And so uh, through your generosity and through your commitment here at City Light, we're creating a place that people can be launched from that they can go serve the Lord. And so this is a big, big deal. It's an exciting time. Uh, and uh, this is what we came here to do. And so we hope to see this happen 100 times over, over and over and over again throughout the life of City Light. So uh, thankful for you, Taylor. Thankful for your ministry and your brotherhood in Jesus. And uh, excited to hear you preach today. So I'm going to pray over him as he brings the word. And you're going to hear from the word, most importantly, also a little bit about the church. And I want to encourage you. There's an interest meeting after the service. Uh, and so just go check it out, pray over them, hear about how you can give. City Light's going to be super invested in them through your giving. But if you want to go above and beyond that personally to be able to bless the work of the church, uh, if you're interested in going or if you just want to learn how you can pray, uh, join them for the interest meeting afterwards and you can support the work. All right, so let me pray. We'll get this kick started. We'll hear from the word this morning. Lord, we love you. And we just thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done here at City Light. Thank you for Taylor, for his family. Thank you for all that you've been doing in and through his life and his family, Lord. Thank you for his faithfulness to you, most importantly, his love for you. Thank you for the calling that you've put on his life now. So just pray over your blessing over this service, that you would anoint him to preach your word this morning. And I pray also your blessing over this church, that you would use it to glorify your name and to reach many souls for your kingdom. And so we, we submit this all over to you. We ask for your blessing on it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Is my mic on? Can you guys hear me? Am I good? No? Maybe? Yes? We good? Okay, first service, it was all messed up. Nate, I just want to thank you for matching with me today. Um, I appreciate that. With this being my final sermon at City Light, that was very kind of you. Um, in a minute, I'm going to talk a lot about what my family's getting ready to do, how we're going to pack our bags, and myself, my wife, Trinidad, my mom, our kids, Greg and Aaron, uh, we're going to prepare our minds to move down to Charleston. But what I want to do this morning, uh, before we start talking about that, um, what I want you to see is that while we are moving to a different city and we will be in a different zip code, rather than thinking about this new church as a new church, I want you to see that I believe what is happening is a continuation of the work that the Lord began a long time ago. That really what we're doing in uh, starting a church in Charleston is we're just continuing the same work that we do here day in and day out, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. See, I believe that God is a master planner and that his plans and the details of his plans are far too vast and far too wide uh, for any human brain, especially a brain like mine, to comprehend. Uh, that, that God would have it that six years ago, a mixed kid from Boston, that's myself, uh, an Alabama fan, like a Roll Tide fan who drinks sweet tea and says y'all way too much, and then uh, a Filipino kid uh, who loves Kobe Bryant, that these three individuals would get together and in 2019 they would plant a church called City Light Church. That, that God thought for some reason that that was a good idea in his plan, and I'm just so grateful and I'm so thankful uh, that God planned it that way. Um, I'm very humbled and I'm very honored uh, to have been a pastor here uh, and not just under Nate's leadership, 
but also just as a friend and a brother to many of you in the room. Uh, man, I can't talk about it too much without getting choked up, but specifically for Nate, I think of Psalm 78, 72. It says, David shepherded them with integrity of heart, and with skillful hands he led them. Uh, and Nate, it's been a humbling privilege to be under your leadership the last six years, and Guys, he's taught me almost everything I know about teaching or preaching or the Bible or how to counsel, and I'm just so grateful and thankful for him. Uh, will you guys give him a hand for what he does? <laughs> My perspective is one of like once the events are over and once everything calms down, uh, you know, there's a lot of privilege in coming alongside people in moments of pain. And I'm telling you, you guys have a pastor who leads with integrity. You have a pastor who gives it all. And um, make it easy for him, okay? Uh, so when I call him in six months, make it easy on him. Uh, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 10 today. And we're going to be looking at a couple of different parables. And um, what, what we're going to see is that the word parable, specifically the word parable, it means uh, to lay side by side. It means to put right next to each other, to put side by side. And uh, what, I, what I want you to see is that in chapter 10 of Luke, there are three different parables, or there are three different stories that the Lord puts side by side, and all of the stories, or all of the parables, have the same exact point. And the point is, is that our lives are primarily about our identity and not our activity. It's about our identity and not our activity. And what we're going to look at is not the whole chapter of Luke this morning, but we're going to look at, um, we're going to look at primarily the middle parable. But before we do that, I want to take you to the beginning parable, and I want to take you to the end, but we're not going to read it. I'm just going to like summarize it, okay? So in the beginning of the chapter, we get this story of the 72, that 72 disciples of Jesus Christ were sent out in power, supernatural power, and they were like going everywhere, and they were healing people, and they were casting out demons. It was like an episode of WWE. It was crazy. Everything was going uh, really, really well. They were performing miracles in power and in uh, the spirit. The beginning of Luke, we're told that they come back from these types of events, after healing people with joy in their hearts, and they're, they're so excited because, I mean, my gosh, could you imagine actually seeing somebody who's physically sick be healed by God? Could you imagine actually seeing somebody who's blind be able to see for the first time? Could you imagine the supernatural power of God on full display in the lives of people? This is what they're seeing, and they're so excited about it. And so what's interesting is they get back to Jesus, and he acknowledges their joy, but he says, hey, uh, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, meaning I was there in the beginning. Do not be joyful about the demons obeying you or about enemy, or the Satan obeying you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus looks at his closest followers and he says, hey, I was there in the beginning. I saw when Satan fell. Be joyful about salvation, your identity, not your activity that you can cast out demons and that you can perform miracles. And now we jump to the end of the chapter, okay? So follow me. We jump to the end of the chapter, and at the end of the chapter, we're told a story about two sisters, Mary and Martha. And if you grew up in church, this is a story that will stir up all sorts of emotions because anybody who has siblings, what we see on full display is the tension between two sisters and their personalities, that uh, Jesus enters into the house of Mary and Martha, and he sits down. Now, on the one hand, there's absolutely no way Martha was ready for the Lord to visit the house that day. She was not mentally prepared to process that the Son of Man was going to ring the doorbell that afternoon. And I don't know if you have anybody in your family who can relate. Uh, we often host people in my house, and after a few years of marriage, I've learned that there are things that I have to do before I invite people over. Uh, husband is a really good lesson to learn. Uh, you should know that, uh, that you need to clean up before you invite people over. And if I were to tell my wife right now that Jesus was coming over after church, I'm pretty confident she would stand up wherever she's sitting, and she would like rush home right now, middle of sermon, and just go prepare for Jesus to come, because he's God. And like, preparations need to be made. And so we can understand Martha and her anxiousness to want to get the house ready and that she's running around the house. And then we see her sister, Mary, who instead of running around the house cleaning, she's quiet and she is still at the feet of Jesus. What Jesus tells Martha 
is that she is anxious and troubled about many things. I wonder if anybody in the room this morning can relate. Are you anxious and troubled about many things? But that Mary has chosen the good portion. And sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to his teaching, is what he acknowledges and praises. Okay, so we have those two stories. And then what we're going to do this morning is we're going to focus on the principle of those two stories, but it's found in the parable in the middle. This principle of these two stories is simple. That for those that were casting out demons and they were rejoicing about it, and then for Mary who was frantically serving, or for Martha who was frantically serving, what I hope that we see this morning is in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is trying to communicate that he is more concerned about your identity, not your activity. Jesus is more concerned about your identity, not your activity. And my fear for us is that you and I would make the same mistake that Mary made or that the 72 made and that we would be more concerned about what we can do and we would be less concerned about the identity the Lord has given us. What we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about the mission of the local church. It's the mission that every single church that is honoring the Lord according to the Bible has. And part of my conviction for starting a new church, part of the reason why I'm obsessed with church planting and why I talk about it all the time, if you spent any amount of time with me, the reason that I believe in my bones that I'm consumed with planting a new church is that so often so many Christians are caught up in activity upon apart from an identity in Christ. What we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan is that we should rejoice in our heavenly identity, that God has given us an identity from heaven and that we should sit and we should be still and we should be quiet in light of God's teaching. So if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Let's go. I'm excited. I'm ready to have fun. I hope you guys are ready to have fun. Uh, I've been thinking about this for so long. Okay, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. This is what the Bible says. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, What is written in the law? Have you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, that's talking about the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the same place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray right now for spiritual understanding. Lord, I pray for increased faith and I pray for heart conviction. Help us have ears to hear and eyes to see this morning. Amen. All right, this is the working sentence for the rest of our time together, okay? And I've said it somewhat already, but uh, the idea today is that the mission of God for the church is about your identity and not your activity. So everything I'm going to say after this is, is to get you to this understanding that the Lord is concerned with your identity. The Lord wants his church not to be consumed with Christian activity, but to be content in their Christ-like identity. And this morning from the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're going to see a process for the mission the Lord has given his church. That this process is for everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, okay? And it's on the slide. The first thing that we'll see is every person in the God's kingdom will encounter the love of God. That's the first point. Well, they'll encounter the love of God. Once you encounter the love of God, you're called to equip the people of God. And after you equip the people of God, you're called to expand the kingdom of God. 
encounter, equip, and expand. This is the process that we get from the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you're ready, say ready. All right, encounter the love of God. This is living fully, okay? So if I had to say it a different way, it's living fully. It's life to the full. And this is the question that the lawyer asked. He says, and behold, a lawyer stood up, put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Look at somebody next to you and say, I want to live fully. That's right. I want to live fully too. The lawyer, though, uh, your translation might say that he was a religious expert or he was an expert in religious law. Basically, he was an expert of the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. And so not only was he Jewish and had like a bar mitzvah at the age of 13 and memorized uh, the Old Testament, but he went on to be a scholar in the Old Testament, and so he would teach it in his community. And he stands up, which is the first indication that he, what he's about to say isn't very good. And then with a tone of like, let's see if you can answer this, he says, what do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? Now, the question itself shows a lack of understanding on the part of the religious man. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? I just want to be super clear, okay? The gospel of Jesus Christ is built upon the fundamental truth that there's absolutely nothing you and I can do to inherit eternal life. There is nothing you can do. The question is, how am I to be saved? Now, I, I grew up with some good teachers, okay? I grew up with some teachers that were very gracious and very kind. I grew up and my teachers told me something like this. They said, there's nothing, there's no such thing as a dumb question, okay? That's what I was taught. There's no such thing as a dumb question. Now, some of you might have strong convictions about whether or not that's true, uh, but I think that Jesus must have thought along those lines because instead of telling the expert, hey, your question is dumb, rather, Jesus just answers it with another question. He says, what is written in the law? And then this guy, who's a law expert, he has it memorized like any good Jewish leader would. He responds with verse 27. And this is the reason why our church in Charleston is gonna be called 1027 Church. It's coming from this verse. Listen, he says, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is saying, hey, the standard for eternal life is perfect love. Jesus says you must love perfectly in order to be saved. This is the first step in the process for the mission of God in the church is that you and I would encounter the love of God and that that love in our lives towards others and towards God, that it would be perfect. And from a distance, this makes perfect sense, that you and I would love God with all because God created all of me. Who gave you your heart? Who gave you your mind? Who gave you your soul? Who gave you your strength? God did. God gave you all of these things, and so naturally, the response to the creator and the giver of life is that your heart and my heart would be his. Colossians 1.16, it says it like this. I hope this encourages your heart this morning. If you're anxious, if you're tired, if you're exhausted, if you're worried, for in him all things were created, including you and me. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So when the lawyer answers the question with verse 27, he's actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. He's quoting the Old Testament, and it's on the screen. I'm going to read it again just so that it gets home. It says this in verse 4, Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. So, so this, these couple of verses, these three verses or five, four verses, they refer to the Shema. The, everybody say that. Say Shema. Okay, these are a couple of lines that I just read from Deuteronomy, and these verses became like, they became like a daily prayer in ancient Israel. It was the equivalent of like the Lord's Prayer in Catholic tradition, like our Father who art in heaven, something that you say all the time. And the idea is that Jesus is telling the lawyer, listen, you have to wrap your mind around the oneness of God or the wholeness of God, that God is 
preeminent, that he is first, that he is whole. This means that God is your priority. It means that he's not just like first on the list in your life, but rather he's the paper in which your entire life is written on. When you begin to see him for who he really is, the only normative response is that you would begin to love him with all of your being, with all of yourself. And uh, if I'm being honest, the goal is that he would, you, we would encounter his love, but the lawyer, the lawyer just doesn't get it. He's just confused. He doesn't get it at all. He's, he's so lost, and he's not listening. And so what I want to do is I want to uh, get some volunteers, and uh, I think they're out here. Can I, we get some volunteers up here? Um, and they know that they're volunteering, but they have no idea what I'm about to ask them. So uh, give them a hand, if you will. Okay. Um, now, uh, now, what we're going to do is you guys are going to have a little bit of a debate, and I'm going to have fun at your expense, okay? That's what's about to happen. Um, but what I want you to do is I want you to think of your favorite sports team, okay? And we're going to talk about why they're your favorite sports team. So I'm going to start with you, Anthony. You have 30 seconds to convince Brian why whoever you root for is who everybody should be rooting for. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Uh, my favorite sports team is the Philadelphia Eagles. Go Birds! We'll pray uh, for you. Well, we're eight and one, so mm. we're leading the league. Unfortunately, we lost to Washington last week, but that's that's just a fluke. It's okay. I'll give that to you. But yes, we are leading the NFC. We're leading the league in uh, wins, so that's the best sports team. All right, that's right good. Now. Awesome. Great. Okay, you ready? Yeah. All right. I want you to repeat back for the whole room what Anthony just said. Uh, he likes the Eagles. Um, and it sounds like he's a Fairweather fan just because they're winning. Mm. <laughs> uh, I had other, something to do with wins. Wins, that's it? That's wins. all you got? You, yeah. you weren't listening? Something about losing. Something about, thank you so much. Yeah. All right, that perfectly <laughs> demonstrates. Give them a hand. They're, they're good. Okay, the whole point of doing that, okay, is because I really, in, in counseling, me and my wife do this when we do marriage counseling, it's called the speaker-listener technique. It's that we as men have a really hard time actually listening to our wives, and what I wanted you to see is that in the same exact way, in the same way Brian wasn't able to repeat verbatim what Anthony was saying, what we see in Deuteronomy 6 is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And that hearing in Deuteronomy, it's not a, um, it's not a like, hear the words that are coming out of my mouth. It's like, at the depth of your soul, have spiritual understanding. Matthew eleven fifteen, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And maybe you don't follow the Lord, and you're not a Christian, and you don't know Jesus. And my prayer for you this morning, as I'm like, like slaving over this manuscript this past couple of weeks, and I'm trying to think through and strategize of, man, what could I say that would change everything? What, what could I communicate that would change everything? And in and, and, and the same way that the lawyer did not hear, like Brian did not hear, the lawyer was not hearing what Jesus had to say. See, the lawyer, he asked a very important and fundamental question to life. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? In other words, the, the deeper layers of that question is, why am I here? What did God build me for? What is the point of life? What does it mean for me to be a human being? And, and what am I meant to be? What is the purpose in my life? And Jesus is trying to tell him the answer. Jesus says it's love. It's love. And this makes sense. Like the point of our existence is love, and it makes sense. Unfortunately, love is completely dominating in our lives. Completely dominating. It's the loss of love that makes you not want to live. And it's the hope and the certainty of love that makes you want to live. When you and I are giving and, and receiving love, we feel the most human. We feel the most alive. And when we're not, we feel like an animal or a vegetable or a mineral or a machine. And we know this intuitively. We know that love is why we're, we were created. We know that love is the only thing that matters. We know that the sum human purpose of existence is to glorify God in a way that shows love for him and love to others. What Jesus is about to teach about love, though, in this passage, it goes against modern common sense. What he's about to tell the lawyer 
about love is not something that most people would agree with today. And if you don't have ears to hear, and you don't have eyes to see in a, spiritual, in a spiritual way, you'll miss it. I don't want you to miss it. Listen to this. This is what Jesus teaches that most people would argue with. He says this. He, he, he's teaching him, until you see that you are incapable of love, you are incapable of love. I'm going to say it differently. Until you see that you can't love, you can't love. Real love begins when you realize you don't have real love. Look at verse 29. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself. This is the heart of religion, okay? Religion is not about a loving relationship with Jesus. It's about my work, my self-righteousness. See, this lawyer was taught, like many of us, the gospel of good works. Or in other words, your activity is what saves you. Your good works will justify you. And if we're being honest, many of us often feel as though we can justify ourselves. I've read Luke chapter 10 probably a hundred times. Let's just pretend it was like a million times and I'm really super holy or whatever. And, and I don't know why, but for some reason this past week when I was looking at this, but he desiring to justify himself, it just stuck out. And I just asked myself, like, what is wrong with me? Do you ever feel the need to justify yourself? Do you ever feel the need to explain yourself or constantly, like, defend yourself? And, and maybe you've been following the Lord for a long time, and you know that Jesus actually died for you, and that intellectually in your mind, you're like, it's not my works, it's what he did. But, but then in your day-to-day -day living, it's like you still live as if you're trying to earn something, or you still live as if you have to do some good in order for God to approve of you. I was arguing with my three-year-old daughter the other day and trying to explain something to her, and I was going back and forth, and I realized, like, I'm arguing with a three-year-old. Like, why, why do I always want to justify myself? And what Jesus is trying to communicate is, listen, your activity is not what saves you. Jesus' activity is what saves us. And the lawyer just lived a life where he was hoping that when he got to his deathbed, hopefully his good works would outweigh his bad works. This is what the lawyer believed. Look at the verse. The lawyer stood up to test Jesus. The word test there, it's translated trapped. That's what it means. It means trapped because this is what he wanted to do. And Jesus is just going to mess with the lawyer at this point. He just messes with him. Jesus tells him, you got it, dude. You answered correctly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Just do that. Just do that. That's it. That's simple. And you'll inherit eternal life. That's all you have to do. Show of hands. How many of you know somebody else who has done that? Who has loved God perfectly and loved their neighbor as themselves? It's impossible. It's impossible for him to do that. Loving God in all of these categories is impossible for him, and maybe this morning you feel trapped. Maybe you feel as though the circumstances in your life have surrounded you in such a way to where you can't get out. Maybe this morning you feel like you're unable to fix the pain in your life or the despair in your life. You have not been able to love with all. See, and I heard whispers of it. I know someone who has loved God with all. His name is Jesus. When Jesus was 33 years old, he was towards the end of his life, and all these Roman soldiers thought it would be a good idea to mock Jesus, and so they shouted at him, King of the Jews, and they would dress him in a purple robe with a crown of thorns, and then they led him to a place called Mount Calvary, and then Jesus would give all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his strength, and all of his mind, and on all of his blood would be spilt out, and all the oxygen in his lungs would leave his body, and it would be spent so that all the world would see the love that he has for his father and for his people. He did it so that you and I today could encounter the grace and the mercy and forgiveness of our sin, that we would encounter his love, that we would encounter the love of God. Matthew 5, 3, it says it this way, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're going to get a tattoo, this is a great tattoo to get, okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why is the person who is spiritually poor considered blessed? 
Well, it's because when you realize that you're spiritually incapable, you have to trust and depend on God who is capable. Encountering God's love is the starting line for a loving relationship with God. It's the beginning of life. It starts with being with the Lord. And so what Jesus is trying to communicate to the lawyer is that you have to be saved. He's basically trying to tell the lawyer, this is salvation. This is the love of God empowering us to live fully for him. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? I need to accept Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins by faith. There's nothing I can do to inherit eternal life. I don't look to my action or my activity. I look to Jesus' activity on my behalf. Now, once you encounter God's love, okay, once you encounter God's love, it changes the way you treat others. Once you're a Christian, once you're saved, it, it changes everything about you, primarily the way you treat others. When you encounter God's love, you're ready to equip the people of God. And this is our second principle for today. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. We equip the people of God after we encounter the love of God. We equip the people of God after we encounter the love of God. Look at the verse with me again, mainly the end of the verse. It says, and your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so we're going to have a really awkward moment. I'm giving you a disclaimer. It's going to be awkward. I'm going to enjoy it, but you guys are going to feel awkward. Look at somebody and say, you have to love me deeply. Say it like you mean it. Say it like you mean it. If there's uh, some marriages in the room that are, like, really tense right now because there's stuff going on, we can talk after the sermon, okay? Uh, but this is true. This is like a command from the Lord. We have to love each other deeply. And at face value, the command to love your neighbor as yourself, at the very least, is just fair. It's just fair. Like, Jesus is not saying love others more than you love yourself. Just treat others the same exact way you want to be treated. This is the golden rule. This is the greatest commandment of all. And what's shocking is that... Uh, no one can do it. We're not capable of doing it. It's impossible for us in our own effort to do it. And, and then the lawyer, instead of like realizing the grace or the fairness in the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, his heart is so hard, and he's not listening, just like Brian didn't listen, uh, that, that he just asks a question. He's like, well, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And so he's looking for like the minimum requirement. How, how close does somebody have to be to me in order for them to be my neighbor? He's looking for the minimum requirement. In other words, he's not interested in loving God. He just wants to justify himself. Jesus tells this story of grace, okay? Look at the next verse. This is in verse 30, and I'm going to try to go quickly here. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And if you're in the first century and you're reading it with that lens, Already, you're like, oh no, this is going to be bad. Because that area, that trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, it was filled with like caves and it was like windy and there were a lot of robbers that would hide in caves. And that's exactly what happens to this man. And he fell among robbers who, was stripped, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Okay? So, um, this is, Jesus is a really good storyteller. And this is like the problem. There's a man who's half dead on the side of the road. Uh, verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So when the lawyer heard priest, the lawyer thought like Batman, okay? When the lawyer heard priest, he thought Superman, or you insert your favorite Marvel superhero, I don't know, um, anybody that you think is a hero, insert that. That's what the lawyer thought, because he was a religious leader, and so he hears priest, and he's like, oh yeah, this is going to get great. The priest is going to help him. That doesn't happen. The priest walks by. Then verse 32, so likewise a Levite. While, while a Levite is not a priest, they're still known for being responsible for religious activity and responsibility. And, and the whole point here is that Jesus is not concerned with his religious activity. He's not concerned with it at all. And he's trying to get him to see. And then, and then the worst happens for the lawyer. In verse 33, it says, but a Samaritan but a Samaritan. Now, here's the problem. When you and I read the word Samaritan today, our brains are like hardwired to put a qualifier in front of it. What do we think of when we think Samaritan? Good. That's right. We think good. And that is like the furthest thing from the truth. When you're the lawyer and you hear Samaritan, you think, oh no, 
And what you have to realize and understand is that Jews and Samaritans in the first century were mortal enemies, okay? This was like Harry Potter and Voldemort, okay? This was really bad, really, really bad. You can multiply that by 10, or if, for the wise people in the room, this is like Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi, okay? Yeah, and, uh, and then you multiply that by 10. But here's the thing is what's crazy is that this wasn't a comic and it wasn't fan fiction. This was real. And the hostility between Jews and Samaritans in the first century was ugly. It was racial. It was, uh, it was socioeconomical. It was about class. It was theological. The Jews were God's chosen people. And so for him to say Samaritan, the lawyer's thinking like, oh, no. Not a Samaritan. Let's keep reading. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The good Samaritan... He puts his life at risk and stops what he's doing to give this man, who is unnamed, the most concrete kind of care, medical treatment. He, he gets his hands dirty. He binds up his wounds. He washes him. Then he puts him on an uh, animal and then brings him to safety. He takes this man to an inn and then gives him two coins. And what commentators will tell you is that two denarii at that time is basically like two months' rent. And if you and I were to try to put anybody up for two months, we would see that it actually costs money. He then advocates for the man. He, he says to the innkeeper, hey, uh, if I take too long to come back, if it takes me a while to get back, just like open a tab for him and I'll pay it off when I get back. The Samaritan is risking his life. He's getting dirty. He's destroying his schedule. He's giving the most concrete type of medical care, a costly kind of help, and the Samaritan is doing it for a sworn enemy. Jews and Samaritans were tremendous enemies. Uh, we know this from history that a Jew, the worst thing a Jew could call somebody was a Samaritan. In John chapter 8, when they're upset with Jesus, they called Jesus a Samaritan. And then it was very common for a Jewish person to start their day with, Lord, give me this day my daily bread, keep me safe, keep me from trouble, and Lord, I pray that on the last day, of the day of the resurrection, that there will be no Samaritans there. That's the type of thing a Jew would pray in this, in this century because the tension and the hatred between these two people groups, it was so thick you couldn't walk through it. Why would Jesus give us such an extreme example? Why would the Lord give us this extreme example? See, when the human heart encounters the grace train of Jesus Christ, it will inevitably be led to deeds of compassion, to the neediest and the most broken, even the most ungrateful kind of person who is the furthest away from you and I demographically, socioeconomically, physically, and in every other way. This is real love. When your heart encounters the real love of God and you realize before a holy God your sinfulness, you are moved with humility and compassion for the entire world. See, the commandment to love God with all, it acts like a blueprint for how we both show God love and how we show our neighbor love. And, and the story of the Good Samaritan shows us the wholeness or the completeness of the type of love that is experienced in the gospel. This is a joy-filled love. This is a love that wakes me up every day. This is the kind of love that I like post on Instagram about all the time, and it's the only kind of love that's worthy of my entire life, all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, and all my mind. It's this type of love that my soul is thirsty for day in and day out, that with all of my heart, my relationships, would be, I would, they would be surrendered to the Lord. The way I relate to others, my affection for the Lord and for other people would be in a spirit of love. Uh, this is what it means to equip other people with, uh, with the love of God and then with all of your soul. This means that, that when we learn about God or when we participate in soul care, it's to the level of my soul and other people's souls that they would understand God, who he is, they would pray to God, and they would eventually honor him with how they live. And then with all of our strength, 
This is our physical exertion, our effort. This means that the decisions I make with my physical body are an expression for the affection that I have for God. These are really practical things like how much I work versus how much I sleep. This is like my diet and how much I exercise. This is purity with my body. That, that with all of my strength, I try to honor the Lord. And lastly, this is how we think. This is a Romans 12 too, that we will not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but that by the renewing of our minds, the way we think would honor the Lord, that I would take every thought captive and that I would be surrendered to the Lord in my thinking and that the Prince of Peace would give me peace of mind. That my mental health would be a reflection of a Savior who is resurrected. That God is in power, he's in control, and that despite the chaos around me, there is a supernatural peace available to me through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's being on mission in this way to equip people, our neighbors, because Jesus has blown the category, the cap off of who was our neighbor, everyone's your neighbor, that everything they need for life and godliness would come to them when we come to them. This is what it means to love others deeply loving others deeply. And really, this is the heartbeat of what I hope to see will be planted in in Charleston in the next couple of months. When I think about the last 10 years of ministry, I've been privileged to be serving uh, alongside my wife, Rachel. And for those of you who know, my wife, Rachel, is a family nurse practitioner. Uh, So she sees about 20 patients a day. Uh, Raise your hand if uh, you love going to the doctor. That's what I thought. Okay. Uh, That's perfect. Uh, That's exactly the point that I'm trying to make is that as we talk about holistic care, what I want you to see is that the Samaritan, the good Samaritan cares for the whole person. He cares for his heart. He cares for his mind. He cares for his soul. He cares for his strength. He's binding up wounds. He gives him money. He he provides for the Samaritan holistically. And um, me and my wife go back and forth a lot on the, 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 the gap between her experience with her patients, okay, and then follow me here, uh, my privileged communication with many of you here at City Light Church as a pastor. And I believe that it is privileged. There are so many moments of pain and moments of difficulty where I'm able to, by the supernatural power of God, breathe gospel hope on those situations. And it has been an honor, and I have loved it. At the same exact time, my wife sees 20 patients a day who just lie to her all the time. They, like, come into her office, they have an agenda, and they just lie to her. They'll be giving her, like, a list of, uh, or she'll be going through, like, a list of, like, hey, do you have, like, a history of heart disease in your family? Uh, No. Do you have a history of cancer in your family? No. Are you sexually active? No. And then, like, 10 minutes later, she brings back a positive pregnancy test, okay? That's, like, real. That will happen. And, um... And what I've been privileged to see is that so often we realize that her patients really need the gospel. They need soul care. Like she's putting medication and Band-Aids on things and trying to get people to eat healthy and to exercise, but really they need Jesus. She can care for the physical body all day long, but at the end of the day, they need Jesus. And the same disparity happens in the local church where so often I see Christians who read their Bible every day and they attend church every day and they pray often and a lot, but when it comes to their relational health or when it comes to their mental health or when it comes to their physical health, it's like there's just a big gap between the two. And what we want to see in Charleston is we want to see a church where there is wholeness Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, that, that loving the Lord with all means that all of my life is surrendered to the Lord. And when I think about what God has called us to do is to take a local church back to its historical roots that less than 100 years ago, you could not go to a church without finding a hospital there. Like you could not go to a church uh, without finding the idea of a hospital. And if you look at the root word to hospital, you can't detach it from Judeo-Christian values. That what we are called to do as Christians is care for the entire person. This is what we're called to do. This is historic. And it's less than two lifetimes ago that churches everywhere throughout America were attached to hospitals or attached to clinics. This is what I believe the Lord has called us to do in Charleston. And... Um, and really, what, what I want you to see is that when Jesus asked this question, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be his neighbor, the man who fell among the robbers, the lawyer does not want to answer with Samaritan. He doesn't want to answer it was the Samaritan, so he says it was the one who showed him mercy. 
and, and that's what we want to do is we want to build a church that is founded on showing people mercy and compassion in the same way the Good Samaritan showed the person on the side of the road mercy and compassion. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And this is our last point, that once we encounter the love of God and we equip the people of God, the next step is that we expand the kingdom of God. You go and do likewise. Or at City Light, this would be our repeat. We reach, restore, and we repeat. We go and do it over and over and over and over and over again. That we don't study the Bible and we don't pray and we don't learn more about God to just keep it to ourselves. No, we show the next person who is in need on the side of the road, hey, look at the Jesus that I know. See how he can care for all of you. And, and, um, and what I need you to do is have another awkward moment here is, is when we expand the kingdom of God, I need you to look at your neighbor right now and I need you to say, lead well. Say it like, come on, guys. You, this is 11 a.m. You, you guys can do that better. Say, leave well. Lead well. When you're encountering the love of God and you're equipping the people of God, it puts you on mission to expand the kingdom of God. And when you're doing that, you will lead others well. That is leading well. You will, by default, as a follower of Jesus, be a leader. Because discipleship is all about leading people to the Lord. You can't follow Jesus and not lead other people to him. You can't follow Jesus and not expand God's kingdom. You can't follow Jesus and not be caught up in the work of church planning. You can't follow Jesus and not be concerned about your neighbor. Now, now there are only a few characters in this story, okay? There's four characters. There's the man who gets robbed, okay? There's the priest who walks by, and then the Levite who walks by, and then there's the Samaritan. And if you remember, I explained at the beginning of the story, or I explained at the beginning of the message that the mission of God for the church is about your identity and not your activity. The mission of God for the church is about your identity and not your activity. The only character in this story that does not act, he doesn't do anything, is the man who gets robbed. The man who gets robbed did absolutely nothing, and yet he is the one that the Samaritan saves. When we step back and we look at the bigger picture, we actually see that we bear more of a spiritual resemblance to the helpless man who's half dead on the side of the road than we do to the Samaritan. So this parable isn't go and be a good Samaritan. It's recognize that you are the person who has been stripped naked and robbed. That because of your sin before holy God, there is nothing you can do. You are half dead in your sinful state. And the good Samaritan, in other words, Jesus Christ, I'm begging you to hear this. Hear this this morning. That we are in desperate need of someone to show us love in our sin-sick condition. From that perspective, we can see that Jesus is the true good Samaritan. Amen? Jesus is the good Samaritan, and he has equipped us with everything we need. He came to us while we were still his enemies. He met us when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. He fulfilled the requirements and paid the price so that our soul wounds might be healed. Going to Jesus is better than going to the doctor, better than going to the hospital. He knows exactly the medication, and he knows exactly the prescription that you need. I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team to come back up. And as they come up and uh, we get ready to worship again, there's going to be a video on the screen here in a minute talking a little bit about uh, 1027 Church and what we plan to do. But more than a new church plant and more than um, what the Lord's going to do through a couple of people to move down to Charleston in a couple of weeks, I'm convinced that there's somebody in the room this morning who recognizes for the very first time by the Spirit of God that they cannot love without God helping them to love. That the journey to new life starts when you realize that Jesus has given you new life. It's only by trusting in Christ's death and resurrection for us that we can inherit eternal life. That this life is not about your activity. And that if you try to please God by doing, it's going to be exhausting. 
And so I'm begging you, if there's an individual in the room today that needs to repent from sin and trust in Jesus, I hope that you can join us in this journey as we try to encounter the love of God with people everywhere, and then we try to equip them with the word of God, and then we encourage them to expand the kingdom of God. This is the work that we are called to. This is the work that we are caught up in, and we're never going to stop until Jesus comes back. So in light of that, uh, turn your attention to the screens. pastor and a church planter, and I want to personally invite you to join a new work that the Lord is doing in Charleston, South Carolina. 1027 Church Charleston will be planted in 2023, and we really, really believe that the Lord would have us plant a church where we would make healthy disciples. Luke 1027 says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all your soul, and with all of your strength. And we are confident that this verse is the driving force behind creating a culture of discipleship in a local church that will help people love God with all of their lives. That as we surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the Lord is going to do a supernatural work in and through lives. We want you to be a part of it. You can be a part of it by praying for us. You can be a part of it by participating or giving of your money um, that we can help others who are in need and meet needs within the community. And finally, you can pack your bags. You could really ask the Lord if he is moving in your life in such a way that he would have you pack your bags and join us in the work. We believe at 1027 Church, people will encounter the love of God. At 1027 Church, we believe that people will be equipped by the Word of God and the people of God. We believe at 1027 Church that people will expand the kingdom of God. information, please visit t27church.org.